This is the Future of HR podcast, episode four. I think we need to be the group that drives high performance. You can talk about engagement and well-being and all these other things. They're all lovely, but they're only contributors to high performance. And our legitimacy doesn't come from being the best friend to employees. Our legitimacy comes from helping the business to thrive so that we can hire employees and we can treat them really well and help them have great careers and and support great communities. But none of that is possible unless we're driving high performance in the business. What differentiates the best HR leaders from the rest? Why is knowing the business and loving the business critical to your success? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Today, my guest is the one and only Mark Efron. Mark founded and leads the Talent Strategy Group, which helps the world's largest and most successful companies improve the quality and depth of their talent. He co-founded the Talent Management Institute and created and publishes Talent Q Magazine. Mark also co-authored the Harvard Business Review bestseller, One Page Talent Management, often called the Talent Management Bible, and most recently, Eight Steps to High Performance, which is a must-read if you want to accelerate your career. I have known Mark for over 10 years, and what you may not know about him is that he's incredibly generous. So generous, in fact, he has given me five copies of Eight Steps to High Performance to give away. To enter to win one of Mark's books, all you have to do is write a review of Future of HR podcast on your favorite podcasting platform of choice. Take a screenshot and email that screenshot to jp at futureofhr.com. Again, jp at futureofhr.com to be entered into the contest. The contest will end October 31st, and I will randomly select five lucky winners out of the contest submissions. I'm looking forward to seeing your review and hearing from each of you. In our conversation today, Mark and I will discuss his career journey and what led him to co-author One Page Talent Management the unforgettable advice that Marshall Goldsmith gave to him and the impact it had on his career and what differentiates the best HR leaders from the rest and a whole lot more. Mark, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. JP, so happy to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. This is something I've been looking forward to for a while. We have known each other for 10 years, maybe plus now. And I just have to say, before we get started, I want to thank you for all you've done for our field. You are incredibly generous and your thought leadership really has, I think, changed the way people do talent management across so many organizations. So we really appreciate that and appreciate you coming on the show. No, my pleasure. Thank you. This is uh, everybody benefits when we do our work better. So let's just keep let's keep going on that goal. So I thought we'd kick it off and get to know Mark Efron before you are Mark Efron. And tell us a little more about how your first few roles really shaped your later career and decision to write one-page talent management and launch the talent strategy group. 
Yeah, I'm going to give you the short story, but hitting the few key points. So very unpurposeful early career, meaning I took the jobs I could get and didn't get a lot of the jobs I wanted. So came out of undergrad with a political science degree, which is really good for nothing. But I happened to start working for a congressman. So that was helpful. I learned what it was like to show up at nine and literally at 4.59 p.m. had your coat in your hand with a hand on the light switch ready to leave. So first lesson was how to be a government worker. And uh, I thought, that's not really productive. Um, My wife and I decided to move to San Diego. We wanted warmer weather than we had found in Seattle. I fell in with a group that did governmental consulting for land developers, uh, literally Hmm. helping to get candidates elected who are friendly to the land development industry. And a short story, this was California in the late 80s, showing how old I am. But the way you made money as a land developer was you bought big chunks of land in places that at that time were in the middle of nowhere, Palmdale and Victorville. And then you got approvals to build. So you can't build just because you buy land. You have to get approvals from the water board, the sewer board, the city council. Our job was to elect friendly people to the water board and the school board and the city council. Uh, And so we did uh, political consulting. But the magic that this group had created was we had a booklet. It was, I don't know, 17 pages that taught candidates how to get elected in these little podunk districts. And it radically simplified election consulting. It said, look, do three things. See if I can remember the three things. Um, It was uh, yard signs. And the yard signs looked like this. Here's the vendor to contact. Make them look exactly like this. It was door knocking, which I don't know if you can do anymore, but you go knocking on doors saying, hi, I'm the candidate. Here's the script. Do not vary from the script. Read the script exactly. And there's probably one other thing. And they had just simplified election consulting down to, look, here's what works. You're not running for Congress. You're running for water board in the middle of nowhere. Just do this and you're going to win. And it worked well. So key experience number one. Radically simplified down to the basics. Okay, that stuck with me. And then after you do something like that in politics for a while, you feel dirty and you want to do something else. Uh, And so I went off to business school. I was super fortunate, literally still cannot explain how I got into Yale, but got into Yale. And uh, when I I left Yale, I had kind of this bent on OB and OD. And so I was just trying to figure out, well, how uh, how do we make all the great science in this field actually more applicable? Because I found out, hey, we got a ton of good science. And I combined, okay, well, we got this great science. What did I learn at that consulting firm? Well, simplify the few things that matter. Okay, what if we simplified the science, the few things that matter? And then I got a great job coming out of business school in a company called Oxford Health Plans, super entrepreneurial, fast-growing company. And HR at that company was, you'd better deliver value or you're gone. It was entrepreneurial HR, nothing squishy, nothing fluffy. Show us what you can do. And so I channeled, okay, we know a few things matter. We know there's great science. Just get stuff done. That was kind of a nice package of deliver, deliver the few things that matter and make sure there's some proof behind it. That was kind of the generate, and that's a long version of the short story. Um, Mm -hmm. That kind of packaged into how I wanted to approach the world. And then many years later, I had this opportunity after my time at Hewitt to go to Avon and put all this into practice and say, okay, you think you're smart, Mark? Go make that theory work. And we had the opportunity to do that. Wow, that's terrific. I think what's interesting is that you were able to really pick up on some core learnings across the way that really helped shape you. 
into really doing something that was radically different with one-page talent management. So that's great. I really appreciate you sharing that, Mark. What, by the way, just for fun, what was your least favorite role there? Was it working in the government? What part did you not love about that? I'm just curious. My least favorite role was my first job out of business school with a small consulting firm at the time that you know well called Sibson, um, <laughs> where I was the least capable, least liked individual in the pledge class that came in. Uh, and worked with folks who I didn't really respect too much, uh, and uh, and left after about a year. So yeah, that that was not fun at all. <laughs> well, yeah, you got to have culture fit, right? You got to like the team, like the mission, like the leadership. Otherwise, it's it's not going to work. Right? Exactly. Yeah. No, that's a great learning to know that. Well, speaking about one page talent management, which I think has been called the talent management bible, everyone really absolutely should read one page talent management. I know when I read it, it made an impact on me because we had not met at that point in time. And I thought, hey, who's this guy who wrote this brilliant book? Because this just spoke to me. It was so simple. But take us back. I know it was you and Miriam Ortz, and you put this book together while you're at Avon. Take us back to the moment around you decided to write one-page talent management. What was the motivation to take on that big project? Back to a lot of things in my life not being purposeful or directed. This falls squarely into that category. Uh, got to Avon, was head of talent management, and we were going through a turnaround. And luckily, the CEO was a great sponsor. My CHRO, Luciana Algieri, was a great sponsor. And so we were, I was trying to apply that mindset, just radically simplifying things. And again, I'm a lazy guy. Half of this is me projecting my own view on the world. Isn't there an easier way to do this? That takes too long. That's boring. Let's, so a lot of this was me saying, okay, what's the least tolerant leader going to do? And how do we make it really easy for them to get done? We've done a lot of actually pretty cool work. We were a couple of years into the turnaround. And somebody asked me to go speak at a conference. And I said, sure. Um, they said, well, um, what's the title for your speech? I'm like, I don't know. We're trying to make things easy and simple. I, I call it like one-page talent management. Got to the conference, did the speech. Turned out there was an editor from Harvard Business Publishing in the room. And she came up to me afterwards and said, hey, uh, would you like to make a book out of that? And I said, no, that would be kind of stupid. It's one-page talent management. What am I looking at, <laughs> idiot, writing a book about that? And I said, but, editor, I do have three better ideas. And I pitched her on the first idea. She's like, nope. I pitched her on the second idea. She's like, that's a worse idea than the first idea. And I pitched her on the third idea. She's like, those are all really not good ideas. And I said, hey, let's go back to one-page talent management. Talk more about that. So literally, that was it. it. I had never intended to write a book. I'd written one at Hewitt. or Yeah, when I was at Hewitt, but it wasn't that great of an experience, so I never thought of writing another one. But I realized, hey, Mark, if you think you really have better ideas, this is, one, a great way to cogently organize your thoughts around it. So, you know, if you can teach somebody else, you've probably got your, your thoughts uh, well organized. So uh, kind of package your thoughts well. But also, if you want to go do this on your own, well, a book is a good business card. And so you know, this might be a way of you starting your own firm. So that was really the, the entire logic behind it. Again, not purposeful, um, but kind of lucky. Well, not purposeful, but I think what the opportunity here is you've taken the opportunities when you've seen them and you grab that opportunity. Some people might say, no, I'm not ready to write a book or that's a lot of work. You said, this is an amazing opportunity. I think I can do it. Well, and actually it's funny that sparks in my mind. I tend to not do things when I see other people doing them just fine. I have no desire to compete against somebody who makes great cookies because there are plenty of great cookies out there. I'm not going to start my own cookie company. Um, for things like one page talent management, it's like, okay, 
everybody's selling complicated, complex consulting engagements that don't ever yield results. I see a space there. So for me, a lot of this was, I see a niche. Maybe nobody wants to do it that way, but maybe they do. Let's give it a shot. And again, my perspective was, what's the worst that can happen? I go out on my own. I fail completely. I get another VP talent management job. You know, it's, kind of, it's really kind of low risk. Right. Yeah. It felt like low risk. Well, let's talk about that because you did go out on your own and start the talent strategy group. What was the reaction to the new consulting company, to the book? Was it an immediate success? Um, I was super fortunate that I stepped out the kind of day one I had as a client, American Express, who a recruiter had connected me with Kevin Cox, who's one of the best CHROs ever. Um, had connected me with Kevin. Kevin said, hey, I'll, I'll support you. And we need a little bit of work done with a company called Applied Materials, which some folks know. They, they make, if I recall, they make the machines that make the wafers for, for computers or for chips and someone else. So I was actually super fortunate to step into some big assignments. And then after that, it was just a lot of marketing uh, and a lot of emails and, and just trying to figure out, hey, how do you attract people's eyeballs so that you can start to build relationships in uh, in this field. Absolutely. What advice would you have for someone who's starting out and says, you know, I want to do my own consulting company or go out on my own? Yeah, my, my first piece of advice is typically don't do it. Because here's where most people say, I want to be a consultant. What they mean is they want to do fun work. Well, that's great. That's about 40% of the job. 60% is getting the fun work. And most people are not self-promoters. Most people don't want to write a newsletter, make a phone call, show up at a conference and try and meet 100 people. Most people don't want to do that. And, and that's really what separates the people who make it in consulting from the folks who don't. Marshall Goldsmith, who's been hugely influential in my life in many ways, gave me the initial guidance around that. I met him when I was at Hewitt. And Marshall asked me this question that just at the time amazed me, which was, Mark, I'm trying to be uh, more something like I'm trying to be more successful as a consultant. What can you do to help me be more successful as a consultant? It was like, hold it. He's asking me to help him be more I'm like that's both egotistical and brilliant. And I'm like, sure, I'll help you. It's like, OK, people actually do want to help you. Why don't you just ask them for more help? Don't be a marshal. Also said, why would I not tell people about the stuff I do? It's great stuff. Those two things I've channeled a lot. One is you have to just ask people to help. And if you're proud of your ideas, you should be wanting to shout them from every rooftop. But circling back, most folks who want to go into consulting don't want to do that. They don't feel comfortable. Oh, my good work should speak for itself. Not in this noisy environment. It's not. Right. Kudos to Marshall for giving that advice because people do actually want to help, whether it's for someone's career, a business a project, people feel good about doing that. And so I think it's asking is a really good way to get that help. And, uh, and most people are happy to help. help. Yeah, right. I most mean, people are happy to do it. Even look at this. You're helping me. You're promoting me. I'm helping you. You're, you're getting your podcast going. We're both happy to do it. Neither of us is like, oh, crap, yeah, I'll spend an hour doing it. It's like, cool, let's do it. And I think most people bring that attitude when somebody uh, asks for some, some help. As you and Jim Shanley said, you know, hey, we got a lot of knowledge here we should create the talent management institute and you know, we're not, we're plugging Mark, a lot of Mark stuff, but yes, you should go to the talent management institute. Absolutely. If you can, if, it can, if you can want to buy the one page talent management, sure. If you can afford to go to talent management institute, 
way better for your career because they actually help give you the tools and the models and everything. And the people you talk with will be incredible. It is an incredible program. And just talk about the thought of putting that together because really talent management wasn't, I think, a real function before then in some ways. Yeah. So one, all credit goes to Jim Shanley. Jim is my former boss at Bank of America. He fired me. He says laid off. I say fired. Um, And I didn't like Jim for about seven or eight years after that. And then when I was Wait, at Avon, Sorry to interrupt. Sorry to interrupt. We have to come <laughs> back. You can't just walk past this point. Jim Shanley let you go or yes. fired you. Yeah, we, Tell, me, I had tell us the, more about this. I had, so this uh, I had been with Oxford Health Plans. I mentioned earlier, uh, B of A had an incredibly aggressive recruiting uh, posture. And so they've been calling me for uh, probably like a year. And I kept saying, I want to go out to San Francisco. They just bought Bank of America at the time. They had been Nations Bank. And I said, I got a lot of family in the Bay Area. If you give me a job in the Bay Area, I'll go out there. And they kept saying, no, 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 everything's in Charlotte. And finally, they called me and said, look, this is the last time I'm going to call you. Uh, we've got this really cool job. It's in Charlotte. You know, do you want it or not? And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll take a shot. It was the exact, you mentioned fit earlier, the exact wrong fit. I'm not sure there were fewer dimensions of fit on anything I've done in my life. Um, I'm a creator. I am somebody who likes moving in fast moving environments and I hate politics. Where did I go? To a place where they already had the machine. My job was to crank the handle and not mess with the machine. Uh, it was an incredibly political institution and I'm not a big fan of banks. And so I'm working at a bank. It was like a really dumbass move. And I was there for about six months and they had to go through layoffs. And so, you know, on the stacked rank list of talent management people, myself and somebody else were the two folks who, who got the ax six months after me being there, but led to good things. Went to Hewitt and, and started off yeah. the path that I'm on now. Yeah, I think that's terrific. I appreciate you sharing that story and giving us more context around that because Jim is amazing. Hope to get him on the podcast at one point as well. But I think you guys have done a lot for the field and obviously have kind of mended that friendship. And it was right for you because I think sometimes people are more entrepreneurial. They don't always fit in corporations. They do want to shake things up. You know, to your point, are you a steady state leader? Are you a change leader? And you've got to know that about yourself because you can go into a situation that is the wrong situation. The good thing about B of A is it taught me about that. This we call it now the talent production line, but that was simply me channeling. What did they do so well there? Bank of America at the time was brilliant at developing talent. It's because they had this very disciplined way of understanding what they needed, sorting out the people who had a good chance of showing that, developing the the heck out of them, and then deploying them around the organization. And it was just a machine to do that. So this whole talent production line, which is one of the the main concepts we teach at TMI, really just my channeling, okay, what did they do in in packaging in a bit? But the short story of TMI was Jim approached me and said, um, Hey, I know the folks at UNC's Keenan Flagler Business School, Executive Education. Well, I've been talking to them about doing kind of a class on talent management. Do you want to do something? And of course, I was like, oh, I hate teaching. I don't want to do that. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. He goes, oh, come on. We'll just do one. I'm like, okay, fine. We'll do one. And we did one and you know, sold out and people liked it. So we did another one and sold out. People liked it. And, and it just kind of got going. And what I recognize is I don't like teaching but I love conversations about talent management. And that's really what this is. It's a four-day conversation about talent management where we just we test and we talk and hey, well, what do you think about that? Why do you think that? Well, do you know that X is true? Do you think that and that is fun. Teaching to me is boring as, as heck. I would never want to do it. But having kind of a four-day confab with 50 smart people, that's cool. 
and now we that's all over the globe. We we started doing private programs a long time ago, but uh, we do private programs around the world. We've got our TMI in Europe. We've got our TMI in the Middle East starting this December. So yeah, it just really has dug in, and, and we're just trying to expand it the best we can. I like how you went from. That sounds like a lot of work, kind of like your book. That sounds like a lot of work to do these talent management institutes to now it's a global franchise and we are making sure that everyone in the world is doing talent management the right way, which I think honestly is, is adds so much to the field. It really, really does because talent really goes through everything, whether you're an HR business partner or you're in a talent role or learning development, you can u- utilize the, the concepts that you'll learn in that, in that course so much. How many people have gone through TMI now? We stopped counting a while ago at 5,000. So if we count, and that's our public programs, our private programs, yeah, it's it's 5,000 plus HR leaders and business leaders because we have a TMI for business leaders as well, which teaches all the, the same concepts. And trust me, they buy into it. If people think, oh, my leaders don't believe in this stuff, I guarantee you they believe in the core concept of better quality talent delivers better results. They might not like the way you're doing it, but they buy into the concept. And so TMI for leaders is a way of them understanding a bit more of, well, how exactly do you get better quality talent? You really have thought about wherever you're at, what can I learn from the situation? And what does this organization do really well? And that must have led, I'm guessing, but I want to hear more about what led to your latest book, Eight Steps to High Performance. Um, what surprised you most in writing that? Yeah, yeah I think there's a few things. I look at Eight Steps to High Performance as really the consumer version of one-page talent management because the, the goal of one-page talent management is, hey, let's let's get to all the people who have influence in companies about how people are grown and managed and engaged and make them better. And you now we've gotten to a lot of them, but we haven't gotten to all of them. And I thought, well, for those folks who I haven't had the benefit of a good HR talent leader. Let's just go direct to consumer and let's just tell them, hey, here's what matters. Um, if you want to be a high performer, and not everybody does, that's cool. But if you want to be a high performer, there's actually a pretty proven path to doing it. Part of it also went back to, and this is um, Mark projecting um, his neuroses on his writing, but uh, as I was going through looking for jobs and even in business school, I always thought, how did those people succeed? It's like, I don't think they're any smarter than me. And they always seem to be doing, they're getting ahead of me and they're earning more money. What the heck? And the more I learned about the science of performance, I realized, yeah, they're doing a lot of stuff, Mark, that you should be doing that would lead to higher performance that either you didn't know about or you chose not to do. And and the, probably a perfect example, uh, just to take a, a small tangent, is office politics. Now, I was always, because I'm an introvert, I projected, oh, office politics is bad. You know, those are slimy people who, you know, they're always sucking up. And it wasn't until I got to Avon and I had uh, an executive coach who said, Mark, people who are good at office politics call it building relationships. And so what you're saying is you don't want to build relationships. I'm like, well, I don't know. He said, that's the game that is being played. If you want to be in this game, you need to play it. If you don't want to be in the game, cool. But don't say, I want to be in the game and not do that because that's required. And so a lot of of eight steps is two things. One, let's be open with people about what it actually takes to succeed and let you know, hey, it's proven by science. It's not, you know, maybe you hate office politics. Cool. Hold your nose and do it. 
because it's proven to work. So the, the thought process really behind eight steps was let's make sure that we try to create a more even more level playing field by saying, here are the rules. If you want to succeed, do as many of these as you can. I love it. And you know, that's honestly, I've read it three times. You're not going to believe that, but I actually think it's a great book. Twice more than me. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Um, It's, it's a great book and it's a, it's a pretty quick read, but I think the reason why I've read it is when, especially when you're starting a new job, it's important to remember what really matters. And some of those things I don't like to do either. I'm with you on politics and it's, I like to build relationships, but I also don't want, I want to be able to speak freely. And sometimes you can't in organizations. Sometimes you need to be like, I need to dial it back a little bit instead of saying this idea is stupid the 15th time. You've already said it twice. The third or fourth time people are like, I don't need to hear you say it again. Cause you're sort of, we don't want to really hear the message. Right. I think you have to understand that or the message we always hear, be your authentic self. Well, that sounds great, but you know, you're really playing a role, right? You are a leader at that moment or wherever that job is. You need to do that. Um, so it's a terrific book, but I really, I think it has had a lot of value. And I think anyone early in their career should read that book just because it's so, so much to take in. I'd also recommend Jeffrey Pfeiffer's book on power, any of his yeah. books. He's got a new one that's a little bit more consumer friendly, but go back and read his first ones. And it's like a masterclass of how to have influence and real power and what the real world is like, not the fantasy world of, yeah. I'm an empathetic leader. I think that's great, but most leaders, they're trying to get results, right? Yeah. And the science is clear to Jeff, to your point on Jeff Pepper's stuff, and I drew a lot of his work into eight steps. The science is super clear that people who influence better are more successful, flat out. So if you think, oh, you know, my good work should speak for itself or they'll figure out, you know, no, they won't. It's your job to build relationships and point out how smart you are. And that's okay to do as well. It's just, yeah. That's how the game is played. I mean, I love that comment. Let's talk a little bit more about how the game can be played for career advice, thinking about the next generation of HR leaders, how they can achieve career success. And you know, when I think about this, Mark, I wanted to ask you, what's the biggest capability or skill gap that you see in mid-career HR professionals? And what are the actions they should be thinking about or taking to improve in those areas? They do not love the business as much as they should. Flat out, easy answer, 88% of failure in HR is because you don't love the business. And I separate loving the business from knowing the business. The fact that you can read a balance sheet or an income statement, hey, good for you. It's a great skill to have. But do you wake up every morning saying, I would love to get to the factory today? Or I wonder what I can go on a next, uh, right along the next sales call. That's do you love the business of business? Too often, I say HR leaders look at the business the way that a scientist looks at bacteria in a Petri dish. It's like, interesting to observe, but don't get it on me. And until we kind of put on our hip waders and say, I want to be in the business, I want to be of the business, we're never going to be effective because we're not going to be able to say, this people practice is right for you because... I understand we're trying to drive 4% greater efficiency in factory X, and I think this will get us there. You know, if you're just throwing programs and practices at people, no one cares. So I think that love of business, single biggest missing piece. Well, what if you don't love the business? What's your advice for someone who doesn't love the business or you feel like I should learn the business? What should they do? Leave HR. I mean, seriously, you're, I mean, yeah. this way, there are plenty of mediocre HR leaders. If that is your goal, 
then there's a place for you. But if you want to actually have positive impact on a company, if you want people to say our company is more successful because you're here, then learn the business. But yeah, if you say, I don't really care about business, well, academia is a lovely place to be. We need you know smart academicians who are doing good research and giving us good insights. They don't need to love the business. And I also think if you're in a business or a company and you don't really identify with what they do, you probably shouldn't go work for that company. And maybe they look at, well, this is a great company on paper or it's a good salary but are you really going to be engaged and want to stay there and help that business grow? Yeah, and I think it's almost industry agnostic. I know people who are just as exciting, excited about helping their company turn out great machine parts as people who are thinking about you know working biopharma and they're creating incredible medicines. You can get passionate over anything, but to your point, uh, if you're not passionate over what your company does, it's going to be a really long haul. Right. Or if it just goes against your mission or who you are, but it's a great point. And so you mentioned, you know, we want to be mediocre talent. We don't want to be mediocre. People listening to the future of HR podcasts are absolutely not trying to be mediocre. This is the next generation of HR (laughs) leaders. So what differentiates the best HR leaders from the rest? Yeah, I would suggest a few things. First, let's flip our previous conversation on its head. They truly do both know and love business. I think that's a, a baseline for anything. They are brilliant at building positive relationships in a 360 fashion. So they, their boss loves them, respects them. Their peers at least get along with them. Maybe they're not best buddies, but they get along and their staff respects them. And again, we're not looking for love. We're looking for, yeah, he's a good boss. Maybe not perfect, but you know, sheer he cares about me. They give me good developmental opportunities, et cetera. So you're building positive relationships in a, a 360 fashion and you have a drive to get stuff done. I mean, those three things together, uh, and actually let me add four, sorry. Um, you're good at something. Meaning, if you're in HR, you're really good at comp, or you're really good at DEI, you're really good at being a business partner, but you've established functional credibility. So somebody says, oh, yeah, they're really good at this, therefore, I'll give them a chance at doing something else. So you love the business, you develop some great functional capability, you built the relationships that matter, and then you use all those great platforms to actually get a bunch of stuff done, um, which to my high performer's mindset means you're going to work a lot, you're going to sacrifice, and you're going to always recognize you're competing against the, the output of others. What do you say to someone who says, well, Mark, I don't want to be pigeonholed. I want to be a generalist. I want to be useful in different places, a utility player. What would you say to that person? Yeah, um, get what well, then your depth is being a generalist. I mean, a good HR business partner is smart enough in comp to know some answers, but also know when to call in the comp specialist to, to get the answer right. So kind of that's a general manager in HR, but it means you need to have enough functional depth, which probably means you've had enough experiences to understand how to deploy DNI, understand how to deploy talent acquisition, et cetera, et cetera. And so to me, that feels like you are actively seeking out new experiences across those areas to build breadth and then specific experiences and in different business partner challenges to build, to build depth there. And then you can say, hey, not only do I have a lot of great business partnering experience with helping to set HR strategy and building good relationships with senior leaders, et cetera, but I have enough tools in my toolkit that I can answer a lot of questions. And I'm also smart enough now to know when I need to go to others. 
And think about how long it takes to learn these things, right? There's no shortcuts to getting that depth or breadth of experiences that you're talking about. And I think sometimes we are looking for shortcuts. Now, the one shortcut is, yes, read your book. Sure, that's going to help you get primed to how to perform on Theoretical the knowledge, not real knowledge. Theoretical yeah. knowledge. And, and I want to go a little bit deeper into experiences, but before I want to take a detour back, because I think one of the, I would say, assumptions or misconceptions about being a high performer is, I can work harder, not smarter, or I don't have to sacrifice. Well, how do you see the role of personal sacrifice in career success or getting ahead? What have you found in your research or in your experience? Yeah, this is a topic that I am still very surprised by the controversy over. In fact, Jim and I have even in, in, in TMI tailored our language a bit to avoid triggering people. We used to think it was a pretty obvious and truthful statement to say, People who are more successful work harder, and they probably work more hours. That just felt like math to us, not like a philosophical statement. But over the past few years, we've gotten people, uh, or people have reacted. We haven't gotten them. People have reacted in a very angry way by saying that doesn't respect work-home boundaries, and people need their personal lives. And our view is we're not saying you have to do that. We're simply saying that life is competitive. You need to choose how you want to manage your life, but you can't get mad at somebody else if they're delivering more than you. So let's go back to performance is always relative. If uh, JP and I are both salespeople, JP hits 140% of his goal, markets 120% of his goal. We both beat our goal, but JP is a higher performer. He's going to get more stuff. And I can't get mad about that even if I work twice as hard. Part of it is just, uh, yeah, the work smart, not hard, I just think is hilarious. And I can pick it apart from a few places. One, it assumes that everybody else is an idiot. Oh, my coworkers, they have no idea how to work smart. I figure this out. I'm the one working smart. They're wasting all their time working hard. So part of it is the arrogance of, oh, I'm so much better than they are. Probably not. Secondly is the false comparison. Well, I know a guy who works 80 hours a week and he does nothing. Well, yeah, if you're comparing yourself to the office idiot, that's probably not the best way of understanding are you good or not. And trying to look what else I have there. Um, yeah, and just thinking that somehow you're going to avoid things that take up time, like socializing with other people because you're more efficient. Instead of recognizing you're actually probably trimming the edges of your career because you're saying things that you don't value, you're going to stop doing, even if they're actually valuable for people to grow in their career. So um, our view is everyone needs to determine the level of success they want and be realistic about the level of effort and sacrifice that's required to get there. We get this question a lot in TMIs, and we'll normally just ask people in the room, hey, anybody here uh, kind of slacked their way to this point? No hands go up. Say that people here had to miss maybe a couple of their kids' soccer games or you know, not gotten to watch their favorite football game on Sunday or whatever it is that you want to spend your time doing, everybody's hand goes up. Yet there is sacrifice required to be successful. How much sacrifice? What do you want to sacrifice? Up to you. And it might not be sacrifice. Maybe you have enough flexibility in your life or enough support systems that you can get everything done. Cool, good for you. But most folks are going to need to actually not do something in order to do more stuff at work. I'll get up to absolutely. the soapbox now. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you're right. And the other point that I think is interesting when people say work smarter, not harder, is that 
in something you talk about in eight steps high performance is having more priorities, like focus priorities. So you can work smarter if you know the two or three things you must deliver to be successful and will actually get you ahead. That's what I think is work smarter, not harder. You still might put in 50 hours, 60 hours a week or whatever, but you're getting the right things done. And I think too often people are going and focusing on the wrong priorities along the way. I think it's a brilliant point. What are the few things your boss cares most about? Let's start with that. What are the few things your boss cares about? Not your favorite project, not what you enjoy doing. Uh, to your exact point, ace those three things. That will buy you permission to do other stuff. Exactly. All right. Well, let, let's talk a little more about experience because I think, you know, first, frankly, the 70 20 10 model is terrific. There's some real research there. We won't get into that now. But we ignore the 70%. We talk a lot about 10% and we don't really talk about what is that 70% experiences. And so what do you say to a high performer in HR who wants to accelerate their career growth? What should be they should be thinking and doing? And of course, I'm leaning towards experiences, but you can go back to the other 20 or 10% if you want. Well, I love you bringing up the fact that we, everybody... 98% of us in HR can recite 70, 20, 10. And Jim and I love asking the con- or asking the question in TMI, does this reflect the actual balance of development in your organization? And everyone says, no, because experiences are a lot tougher than saying, go to a class. Uh, experiences are a lot tougher than saying, we'll give you a 360. So it actually takes some planning and some thought to say, which experiences matter most? And so for somebody who's in HR and says, okay, I buy into the whole 70, 20, 10 thing, but which experiences, uh, I think two paths. One is a more individualized path, which is you need to go speak to 10 people you respect in the HR field, describe who you are, what you've done, and ask them, what's the one next experience you think I should have that will best accelerate me towards the, the career destination I've described to you? So one way is kind of a very individualized, yeah, reach out to a bunch of people and just say, look, this is going to be a 10-minute conversation. I just need your one piece of advice, blah, blah, blah. But that's one way of getting there. Doing it at scale, which I think is more effective in, in big organizations, let's map those experiences. Let's collectively as an HR team say, which experiences do we value as an HR team here at XYZ Company that if we see somebody demonstrating, we're going to think they're a better HR leader? You know, which comp experiences, which TA, TM, DE&I, uh, HRBP experiences do we value? And then let's be transparent with people about these are the experiences that matter most. The more of these you get, not you get a prize, not you get a guaranteed promotion, but the more of these you get, the better positioned you are when good opportunities come up. So if you're a, an HR leader who wants to move even faster, I would suggest take accountability, interview 10 HR leaders that you respect, that you think are high performers and, and see what advice they have for you. Brilliant advice. I know early in my career, I actually looked at job descriptions for what a director of talent had to have. And that actually led me to go to consulting because I said, I want more experiences fast because I always believed that it was experiences were really something I could actually turn into monetize, right? In my career, the more experiences, the more valuable it was, the more I became a leader. And, you know, I think a lot of us, we we get kind of stuck in comfort zones. And so in my mind, the second I'm comfortable is when I start to think I need something new and challenging. I want to be pushing myself all the time. And so I think that's how I've thought about it. But I love going out and having this conversation because I know that if someone reached out to me, I would have that 10-minute conversation with them. 
But the key you said is, what's the career goal? Where do you want to go? Don't come to us with, where do you think I should go? Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right? or how does an HR leader grow? Well, I don't know, 85 different ways? Tell us your perspective, Mark. Over the last 10 years or so, have we improved? Are we the same? Are we losing ground? What's your view of HR as a function or a field? Good news, bad news. Good news is I think we've definitely gotten better. I think we are better at the things that matter most. Even over the past 15 years, I'll stretch your, your number a little bit there. More organizations have more discipline around talent reviews, around succession, around performance management, around manager quality. So I think that we in the field now understand that the flawless execution of those practices actually does drive good business outcomes. And while not every group is good at that, and you know, we're all trying hard and there's still room to grow, but we're better than we were. And I think there's been a meaningful sea change replacement of CHROs who were old-time administrators for CHROs who at least truly know and get HR, if not also hopefully truly know and get the business. Still a mixed bag, but definitely on the upward trend. So I think we've done a lot of good stuff. Here's the bad news. Bad news is the business's demand for what we deliver, I think, has outpaced our growth. And they've been saying, I want more talent. I want that talent faster. I want all these capabilities. They've been asking a lot of us. I think the question is, can we run at least as fast as the business is running in what we do. And I think a lot of that goes to some of the things you were mentioning earlier, focus, simplification. We want to do a thousand things in HR. What are the three things that really matter most? Where's the lift? How do we make that unbelievably easy to do? So I think a bit of a good news, bad news story. I think we're certainly growing. Although there's one thing that still disturbs me. We do this survey every year. My colleague, Zach Upchurch, uh, does this brilliant study every year called the State of Citro uh, Report. And he looks at all the changes that have happened in the Fortune 200. And every year for the past five years that he's done this, the percentage of internal CHRO successors has been dropping. It crossed the line last year where there are now more external CHRO successors than internal ones for Fortune 200 companies. That something's going wrong there. I don't know if it's an HR thing, a CEO thing, but that suggests maybe we need to pay more as much attention to the business uh, sorry, as much attention to ourselves as we are doing to the business. Maybe we aren't growing ourselves the way we should. Yeah, I think maybe we're working too much on the business, not thinking about how we develop our own leadership and teams and get that breadth and depth we talked about. All right, last question for you. What is the one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? High performance. I think we need to be the group that drives high performance. You can talk about engagement and well-being and all these other things. They're all lovely, but they're only contributors to high performance. And our legitimacy doesn't come from being the best friend to employees. Our legitimacy comes, and I'm channeling a bit of Dave Ulrich here, comes from helping the business to thrive so that we can hire employees and we can treat them really well and help them have great careers and, and support great communities. But none of that is possible unless we're driving high performance in the business. All right, Mark Efron, thank you so much for being on the Future of HR podcast. JP, great podcast. Best of luck with it. I know we'll talk soon. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Mark Efron for sharing his career journey and perspectives on what differentiates the best HR leaders. As always, you can go to thefutureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And don't forget to enter to win Mark's book, Eight Steps to High Performance. All you have to do is write a review of Future of HR on your favorite podcasting platform of choice, take a screenshot, and email that screenshot to me, jp at futureofhr.com to be entered into the contest. That's a wrap for this episode, but we'll be back next week with Molly Nogler, Chief Learning Officer at PepsiCo. In our conversation, Molly will share her unique career journey from copywriter to academia to Chief Learning Officer, how technology is transforming learning and development functions, Molly's advice on how to make a successful career pivot outside of your industry, and why skills and projects, not pedigree or roles, will define the future of HR. Thanks again for listening to the Future of HR and being part of our community.